Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I am joined today by author Arnold Kling, who received his PhD in economics from MIT in 1980. He writes a monthly column for the Library of Economics and Liberty and is author of several books, including The Three Languages of Politics, which is the topic of today's conversation. Arnold, thanks for joining me. Good to be here. So I have to say, I'm a little weary in 2024. We've just started off the years when we're recording here. And I'm a little weary because I don't feel like I can convince any of my friends or any of my, maybe they're not, well, some of them are friends. I can't convince any of my progressive friends or my conservative friends to be a libertarian. And so <laughs> I don't know why. And your book has actually kind of points me in the right direction to what it's like to communicate with people and why we might be frustrated because we might be talking over and talking over each other and so forth. So why is it difficult to discuss politics as a libertarian or, or even as somebody who just has strong political views? Well, I think there's a lot of tribalism that underlies our political beliefs, loyalties, what have you. Mm. And what prompted me to write this book, I wrote a first version about over 10 years ago, was noticing that when I was reading op-eds or what people were posting on the internet, it didn't sound like they were trying to open the minds of other people or to open the minds of the people on their own side. If anything, they were trying to close the minds of the people on their own side. So a lot of what you read in terms of political commentary online is just complaining about the other side and denigrating the other side. Not surprisingly, that doesn't really change your mind. If I just say what a, if I just characterize you as an awful person yeah. for being a libertarian, that doesn't really persuade you that libertarianism is wrong. It just shows you that I'm your enemy. Mm. Yeah. The nature of political arguments really, in my mind, means that because we're tribal, I had never thought of it the way you had put it before, where it's like, we're actually trying to close people's minds and to sort of draw lines in the sand. And are we just virtue signaling to each other? Like, you know, when you and I are, if I hear you arguing for a certain thing, are you just signaling to me the arguments I need to give because we're both libertarians? What's happening there when we're solely focused on our way of argumentation? I think we're trying to improve our status within our tribe and to sort of make a war whoop on behalf of our own tribe to sort of raise its overall status relative to another tribe. So if we really put somebody down as libertarian, we say, oh, you just want power. You just want to run other mm -hmm. people's lives. First of all, that signals to other libertarians that we kind of get the libertarian view of the world. And secondly, it sort of makes it, it's an expression of superiority over someone with an alternative point of view. Has anything changed in your mind? I mean, obviously, when the, the big T word in the room, has anything changed in your mind since 2013 in any way that isn't necessarily related to Donald Trump? Oh, okay. Before you said isn't necessarily related to Donald Trump, I would have said that, <laughs> that uh, there was a change there. I think that's a, a broader change that we're seeing, though it's not just him personally, that the elite college educated 
especially college-educated women and non-college-educated men have been driven further apart. And that's kind of along a sort of, you know, trust the people with elite credentials Mm -hmm. versus don't trust the people with elite credentials. And I didn't have that opposition anywhere in the original Mm. version of the book. What do you make of that growing gap? Because I see that as well, especially since COVID. Yeah, it's definitely driving voting differences. It's probably the biggest Mm -hmm. voting difference in the United States. But if you look overseas and the rise of so-called populist or populist right-wing parties, it's obviously not something that's just limited to the United States. So it is one of the most important phenomena. Martin Gorey has a book on that called The Revolt of the Public which I think kind of puts a little bit of blame on both sides, that elites for being arrogant and often mistaken, and the populists for just having a general anger, but an ability to coalesce around a constructive program. In your book, you have what is called a three-axis model of talking about politics and For listeners who understand where Jonathan Haidt is coming from with The Righteous Mind and might even understand things like personality tests, which we'll talk about the distinction that you have with things like personality tests, I like the simplicity of the three-axis model that you're offering here because it is one that we're familiar with. We don't have to remember six or seven that Jonathan Haidt talks about, which are all very useful and helpful. They're They're not necessarily wrong. It's just his grid is different. His matrix is different. And it is talking about politics. So you have progressives, conservatives, and libertarians, which... In and of itself, that's actually a really, really good step because if you have a conversation with somebody who's a conservative and you talk like a libertarian arguing with them, they're going to call you a liberal. <laughs> and, which, and if you talk on the one with, hand, yes, exactly. If you talk with a liberal, they'll call you a right wing, just standard conservative. They can't. Yeah, tell right, you know. right. That's correct. And and I actually refuse to call them liberals anymore because for the most part, unless you're talking about the, the maybe Barry Weisses or or Brett Weinstein's of the world, they're not really liberals. Yeah. They're progressive. So what are the axes that each of these three groups really think along the lines of? Okay, well, so there are three things that we can think of as bad. So oppression, that is, if one group oppresses another, that's bad. Barbarism, that is, if a group kind of steps back and starts doing things that are like torture or advocating for things that would break down civilization, that's bad. Barbarism is bad. And coercion, sort of government forcing people to do things against their will, is bad also. So we we would agree that all these things are bad, but what I claim in the three-axis model is that each group sort of claims ownership over fighting one of the bad. So the progressives would claim that they're the only ones who fight oppression and that Anyone who disagrees with them is actually on the side of the oppressor. So that's Mm -hmm. the oppressor-oppressed axis. The conservatives will say that everyone who disagrees with them is on the side of barbarism. They're the only ones who are standing up for civilization against barbarism. And the libertarian would say that the people on the other side are all statists and power-hungry, and they're the only ones who are fighting for individual Mm -hmm. liberty. So, in general, I try to steer away from saying this is how people think, that they only think along these dimensions, that they mostly use these dimensions as languages to 
demonize other people. But sometimes it does show up almost as if, I mean, the language is used so much that you do see people thinking that way. I'd say the recent example would be progressives versus conservatives on the Israel-Gaza mm -hmm. situation, where progressives almost always make it sound as though people in Gaza are oppressed by the people in Israel and that we need to support what they do and sympathize with what they've done because of that. Whereas conservatives stress the barbarity of the October 7th attacks and say that you have to stand with Israel to mm -hmm. fight barbarism. I think, I think we're seeing those really being used almost to their extreme points of view. And that's why progressives and conservatives just talk past each other on that issue. Yeah. Okay. So maybe it's not the way that they think, but it's sort of the emphasis they place in communicating and sort of we're fighting against, for a progressive, they're fighting against the oppressor. Or for many left-leaning Christians, it's we're going to fight for the rights and of minorities or the oppressed or those of the marginalized, I think is the right word there, would be a, a little bit more theological word. And so they're on the side of justice as it relates to those three separate axes. Is that sort of the way they see themselves? Yeah, I think so. But again, it's often used in these contexts where you're trying to raise your status and within a tribe and raise the mm. status of your tribe. And so you get the rhetoric that's maybe stronger than the your actual... You could actually think in a more nuanced way if you sat back and thought about it, but use uh -huh. this rhetoric as a kind of a shortcut. Okay. Well, let's take an, an example that isn't necessarily so recent. It's kind of an always present kind of thing. The concept of tax reform. How do each of these axes think about the idea of tax reform? Okay, so let's say you're starting with an oppressor oppressed. So the question you would ask about the tax system is, does it, is it quote unquote progressive? Does it take more money from people who we think of as, because they're on top, as exploiting and give money to people who we think of as exploited. If you're a conservative, you would ask, well, does the tax system encourage the behaviors that we think of that improve civilization? So does it improve, does it reward hard work and saving and risk-taking, or does it punish those things? And if you're a libertarian, you just don't want a big government at all. So probably what you ask about a tax system is, does it have as light a load on everyone mm -hmm. as possible? What about the whole idea of like baking a wedding cake for a gay wedding? Somebody's individual choice to, to do that. By the way, I'll just, for readers who want to get this book, which you can get from, I think, the Cato Libertarianism.org website, you go into a lot of different examples. For free, by the way, if you, if you search carefully enough. Right, which is free. A free download in like all four formats that you could want. So that's great. Yeah, so you do have more examples than what we're going to talk about here. But baking the gay wedding cake, right? Well, okay. I guess the wedding cake isn't gay, but the wedding. Yeah, the right. gay wedding cake. Yeah. So from a progressive point of view, what stands out is that gays are historically oppressed. So you really have to make sure that they're allowed to get a wedding cake. And so somebody has to bake it for them. If you're a conservative, you say that sort of that 
religions are an important part of civilization, and if somebody's religious views say that they should not support a gay wedding, then you should support them. And libertarians, I think, would have not an easy time with this. I think they would. their instinct is to get the government not be involved, and so I think the instinct would be to let it be up to the baker to decide whether they mm-hmm. want to do that or not. But of course, notoriously, Gary Johnson, who was a libertarian candidate for president, was actually on the side of of forcing the baker to bake the wedding cake. So it's libertarians aren't all united on that issue. Sure, sure. Well, and there's got to be, in fact, that kind of leads me into my next question a little bit, which is, it can't be that libertarians only think along and only communicate along their freedom coercion axis, liberty coercion axis. And it can't be that a progressive, a self-identified progressive is only thinking along the lines of oppressor oppressed. I mean, even conservatives especially give a lot of lip service to freedom and progressives give a little bit of a like, yeah, 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 freedom's fine, but there's limits, right? Like they kind of shoo it away, but they do kind of give lip service to it has some value. And so each of us isn't going to be just in one of those three buckets. We're going to be communicating and comprehending things that go along in the world across those axes. And I think that's where a lot of times it's very complicated. And I found in myself, just to bring up the Israel-Gaza, Israel-Palestine situation, where some of my own personal tendencies would have come up in like, I'm shifting a little bit to the civilization barbarism axis in my thinking and, and in the way that I am processing what's happening and what side should I be on if I have to pick a side? I mean, I can say that all sides are bad in in a number of ways and to varying degrees, but I have found myself kind of drifting to the civilization axis and for a handful of reasons. So what do you make of the fact that people kind of can shift in and out of that? I mean, how does that affect political discourse as we discuss with people? I think it's best if people are flexible. I mean, there are some issues where I lean heavily on the civilization barbarism axis I usually go first to the liberty coercion axis, not so much because I think coercion is awful and the government is always awful. It's just I have a skepticism of that the government will make good decisions or has a good decision-making process. So I think a lot of people have nuanced views. It's just that when it comes to political commentary, people very often forget the nuances and go straight to arguing for their side. And when they do that, that's when they fall back on these three axes. So I I would hope it's not the case that people just automatically use these three axes as their heuristic. You know, that, that I would hope that people have nuances and can think from all points of view. But the challenge is to get people to talk that way and say, well, if you look at it from this perspective, it looks this way. If you look at this perspective, it looks that way. Here's how I lean. And that you want people to behave that way and Mm -hmm. but it's hard to get them to communicate that way. Yeah. That doesn't get you lots of likes on Twitter (laughs) if you take a a nuanced point of view. You don't get a lot of followers for doing that. No, I guess you don't. I mean Unless you are of the, you know, the libertarians are often, you know, they pat themselves on the back for being criticized on both sides, looking like the enemy toward yeah. the other side. 
looking like a conservative toward the progressive and looking like a progressive according to the conservative. On page 23 in your book, you write, political language is not good for persuading people outside one's tribe or improving relations with them. And I just, my comment on this, where I wrote in my notes here is, okay, now what? Like, what am I supposed to do in order to persuade other people? Because I have friends who I think are, let's say they think along the oppressor-oppressed axis. And I don't think they're necessarily wrong in thinking certain ways, but in some ways I'm like, but you're missing something. And so I try to communicate in that way. So am I only able to persuade somebody by speaking their political language or should I invite them to think along the lines of a new political language? Well, I don't think it's a good idea to sort of fake a political language, for example, to sort of make it sound like you're defending the oppressed. You know, it's that conservatives will sometimes make it sound, oh, on campus, we're really oppressed. I don't think that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Changing people's minds is not an easy thing to do. And the process by which people change minds is very often one of changing who they want to relate to so or who they want to draw their thinking from. So it's almost a case of changing their peer group. I think if you tasked me with trying to change someone's mind, I would start with a lot of listening, just listening to the other person. And maybe even trying to redirect them while listening to say, oh, so you're saying this, so what can you tell me more about that, drawing them out more? Because sometimes as people talk, the more people talk, the more they realize that their position is extreme or maybe even a little illogical, or they start to think, oh, well, I can see where this isn't entirely right. So just getting people to talk more and listening more mm-hmm. versus okay, I've got these three points and they should just shut, you know, knock down your point of view. You brought up the conservative saying that they're oppressed on a college campus. And in one sense, okay, maybe they are in a particular instance or whatever, but that really wasn't what I was thinking. I was thinking more along the lines of something like trying to tell a progressive that if they are really looking out for the marginalized, that those are the oppressed, then this particular tax law, this particular legislation, which they allege is supposed to be good for society, is actually going to hurt the poor. Yeah. Whether it's a minimum wage law or something like that, I wouldn't call that fake. Is that a legit approach in your mind? I think logically it is. I think that in practical terms, I think it would probably provoke a defensive response. Okay. So I think the process of changing someone's mind is pretty subtle. I guess there's nothing wrong with trying to use, you know, let's say economic arguments to say that you know, a higher minimum wage is going to knock people off the bottom of the ladder. And, you know, most people don't, you know, there are all the, these classic economic arguments against a minimum wage or against rent control. But we've been making those points for years and it, it hasn't. Fair. <laughs> you know, it, it hasn't worked entirely. I, yeah, again, yeah. look at the situations where it does work. Somebody comes into a freshman economics class, having never thought of this stuff, starts to understand supply and demand and basic economics, and then their mind does change. But I think what's happened there is they've kind of, in some sense, changed their peer group from a bunch of people who are Mm. just automatically supporting a minimum wage to, oh, I admire this professor. This professor taught me things that made sense. 
and he seems to be pretty wise and seems to be pretty caring, cares about me, cares about poor people, but he's got this different point of view. But it's more about changing who, I, I think you often decide what to believe by deciding who to believe. And hmm. so you know, making a good argument may help you be someone that the other person wants to believe, but often it has to kind of come the other way around from them deciding they, that you're not a bad person. Yeah, so maybe yeah. you're worth listening to. Yeah. No, that's actually really great advice. I think in terms of how do we befriend and make, you're telling me I need to stop making new libertarian friends and make other friends if I want to influence people, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. What, one of you the, might uh, be influenced. There's a risk. Yes, that is true. That is true. I guess, I guess it can work both ways. So you have to keep a balance, I suppose. There's a topic you deal with in your book, which is often when I discuss things with others who are, I would say, a little more intellectual, a little bit more thoughtful, have been a little bit more thoroughly, have more thoroughly thought through their progressivism. They use this phrase, motivated reasoning. And you talk about motivated reasoning. And in my experience, the, the word comes up when people are accusing me of defending my position. So what is motivated reasoning? And what does it mean to be acting with such, I guess, uh, well, let's just go with what is motivated reasoning? Okay. Well, there's this writer, Julia Galef, who wrote a book called The Scout Mindset. And I think it has a great description of the difference between what she calls scout mindset and soldier mindset. So a scout is just trying to figure out, you know, what's true. You go sort of walk in with an open mind. And a soldier is trying to defend their point of view. So what we're calling motivated reasoning is somebody who's in soldier mindset. That is, they don't have, they're not using their, their reasoning to try to sort out, try to go in with an open mind and figure out the truth, they're using their mind to justify their behavior and their beliefs. And there's some psychological theories that the brain really evolved to be this soldier to defend itself and to rationalize what it did, what you do, rather than evolve to explore the truth. And so there's this theory that everyone has motivated reasoning. For example, if you read a research study that says something and it supports your point of view, you don't question it. You just say, oh, look, here's a study that supports my point of view. Whereas if it goes against your point of view, you say, what's wrong with this? There must be some, they must have done something <laughs> wrong here. Let me figure out what's wrong. Has been paid for by 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 a corporation who has an yeah. advantage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the motivated reasoning that, that on one view is that nobody is exempt from that. Everyone thinks they're exempt from it, but nobody is. And that what only what works in in society is this sort of marketplace of ideas. The term that Jonathan Rauch uses is the constitution of knowledge. That is, we have systems like the scientific system where maybe each individual scientist has motivated reasoning, but the interaction of science scientists and the scientific method force them to arrive at truth, even though each individual uses motivated reasoning. 
Well, we'll do that in politics. I mean, that's the that's a challenge. We have a scientific method for science. But well, some things that we talk about in politics are empirical questions. And I did this the other day with a friend where we were talking about data connections. And we weren't like talking about data, but he brought he brings up that whole uh, if you torture data enough, it'll admit to anything line. Yeah. Um, and at, at some point, how do you escape the charge when someone says, well, you're just participating in motivated reasoning or that's how you're acting? How do you prove that you're not, that you've actually been thorough and thought through it? I mean, I guess you can't really do that on Twitter. You have to do that in the context of a friendship or a relationship with somebody. Yeah, I think that's it is more the latter. They just you have to demonstrate that you have an an ability to see when you might be wrong or see weaknesses in your own argument. That's something I look for a lot in people is the, is do they understand the strongest points of view of other people or do they just dismiss them? Right? If you just call me a racist, that doesn't uh, impress me. If you say, well, here's the strongest argument for your point of view and here's what I would say in response, well, that doesn't bust me. Let's talk a little about, to wrap up this discussion a little bit, religion and political sentiment. You talk a little bit about it in the book how as religious sentiment and religious commitment and has weakened. Political sentiment has strengthened. And I I would posture or posit, I should say, that the woke way of thinking, anti-racism, contemporary critical theory, DEI, you know, whatever you want to use that phrase, has sort of supplanted in a number of ways a religious mindset with respect to public life. And that's not to say that there's nothing, you know, some grains of truth in what they have to say or some of their critique of power. But I have noticed this as well. And it does seem to me that we've might, let me get your take on this. The United States was founded on what would we could call the freedom coercion axis, right? And as we become a nation, it's become a little bit more civilized. And so that axis is what sort, sort of forms us over the course of, let's say, the last 100 to 50 years ago. And now we're getting around to the oppressor-oppressed axis because that actually seems like the main thing people are talking about. Our politicians are constantly talking about how big business and big tech are oppressing the, the little people. You have the critical theorists who are saying, uh, critical race theorists who are saying that there's press groups and oppressor groups and things like that. So are there movements in these sort of axes as opposed to just simply people who, are, who happen to communicate or think this way? Do you also see that that's where we're headed? Well, I should say headed in that way, but it, that lately there has been a an overemphasis on the oppressor-oppressed axis. There's a lot of questions all in that one sentence, but there you go. Yeah, yeah. so let me see if I can go back to the first one of sort of has politics supplanted religion. And that's a, I think my instinct is to say, yeah, you know, that that's going on. But if you had to step back and ask, you say, well, what are some of the rules of religion? In what ways is politics supplanting them? That might lead you to a, in a different direction or a more nuanced direction. I don't think I would... I hadn't thought of the idea of saying that you know, the, the country started in a liberty coercion basis, moved to a civilization barbarism, and now oppressor press. That's an interesting thing to think about. I think the question of what has determined, you know, what has caused the sort of social justice activism to sort of 
become much more popular, especially among younger people, is a big question. I'm not sure. There are various answers, but some people think that it was sort of a deliberate attempt by Marxists to kind of infiltrate important sectors of the... Yeah, all the uh, institutions. institutions. Some people think it was just the government kind of started people on this train with affirmative action programs. There's a lot of argument over what Uh the cause is. It's an interesting discussion that would take us another half hour. Yeah, no, it, yeah, it certainly would for sure. All right, one, one final question. You have this statement here that the only person you are qualified to pronounce unreasonable is yourself. So I can't tell my friend who's thinking what I would consider unreasonably. I can't tell him that he's unreasonable and why not? Maybe that's a very kind of idealistic kind of rhetoric, but I think it's, again, based on this notion of motivated reasoning that, you know, we're all guilty of motivated reasoning and to just, you know, kind of denounce someone else and just you know, dismiss them as unreasonable is just not fair. I, I have to say I'm influenced on that a lot by a gentleman who died about a, a year ago named Jeffrey Friedman, who is a libertarian who's constantly questioning libertarianism. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, whatever your outlook ought to be, you just ought to, you ought to be, try to be at least as eager to question yourself as to question somebody else. So if you're going to question anyone's sanity, question your own. Oh, well, that's an interesting place to end a conversation, but I think it's actually appropriate, to be honest. Arnold, where can people find this book? Where can they find anything that you write online for... Uh, okay, my, my current writing is on Substack, and I assume if you look at look for Arnold Kling Substack, you'll find that. And the book, as you mentioned, the cheapest place to find it is on libertarianism.org because you can download it for free. But if you find that, if you just want to save your time, you can look it up on Amazon called The Three Languages of Politics. But I would warn you that the book, in some you know, because of the October 7th thing in, in Israel and Gaza, now seems very timely. I would say if I'd looked at it a few years ago, it, it seemed a little out of date because it doesn't discuss the phenomenon <laughs> of populism. So be prepared that it might seem out of date again soon. Well, that just gives you an opportunity to update it in a few years <laughs> after the dust has settled a little bit on some of these things. Yeah. Well, Arnold, thank you for joining us. I appreciate this conversation and your insights and uh, best to you. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.
Hello, everyone. It's Doug from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You might notice already that this recording sounds quite a bit different from usual. In fact, it probably sounds pretty crappy. Well, I'm doing this to show you something pretty amazing. As you might know, the guys over at Podsworth Media have been producing my show for several years, quite a while, hundreds of episodes. And now they have a brand new online app for taking rough recordings like this one and making them sound a whole lot cleaner and a lot more listenable in just a few easy clicks. So here are some of the core features. They remove background noise. It reduces plosives, which is really handy for me because I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video because pop filters look terrible when you're on camera. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. How do you use it? It's easy. You go to podsworth.com. You click get started. And because you're a listener to one of the Libertarian Christian Institute's podcasts, you can get 50% off your first order by entering the promo code LCI50. That's LCI50 and you will get 50% off your first order. If you are doing anything like a podcast, a video, a sermon, an audiobook, anything that's spoken word, you want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. You want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished.